0: I'm really delighted to be with you today, and thank you very much for coming. My challenge was the fact that I think we could take 10 weeks, and, or 12 weeks, I need more time to talk about living downstream by Sandra Steingraber. Um, it is, I think... A very important book for our times. Uh, it, it was first published in 1997, and it has had its uh, second publication um, in, in 2010 or 11. I think it was 2010. And and the reason that the second publication came about was that the uh, uh, Sandra was a, approached by a film uh, a producer who really wanted to do a documentary called Living Downstream. And there is, if you haven't, you can. There is a trailer on her uh, website, LivingDownstream.com. Uh, and uh, I've encouraged uh, Emily, my cousin Emily Ellis, <laughs> to, to encourage the um, Knox County Library System to actually buy the documentary. I think it is that significant and that important. Um, Dr. Sandra Steingraber is uh, a poet, she is a biologist, she's a scientist, she's an ecologist, she's the mother of two, a wife, who live, and they live in upstate New York. Um, And she is is one of the best writers I think I've ever read. I mean, she has taken an extraordinary complicated subject and... Uh, she, she tells a story about it that, that is, that is it, it's hard to say it's easy to read because there's so much technical information in it, but she's made it very palatable for, I just think, average people to truly understand um, the relationship between the contaminants and carcinogens uh, that are in our environment and the incidence of cancer. Uh, among us, which has obviously increased over over the years, certainly increased since since the first publication of um, of this book. I want to do two things today, and one I want to read some excerpts from the book because she writes so beautifully. Um, the second is to try to, as best I can, you know, give a kind of synopsis of the book, and then leave time to to have some discussion. I'd like to hear your input. In the interest of full disclosure, because there was so much material in this book, I did—I I have relied somewhat on a review of the book that that really pretty much, you know, delineated the main points, and, and I hope you'll forgive me for that. But um, I'm, you know, these days just trying to keep all the all the, the stuff keeps falling out of the basket, so I I, I have to have prompts and and and, and cues uh, with which to do it. One of the things that that Sandra Stein Graeber does is to pay homage to another uh, pioneer in in the field of of connecting the dots between the environment and illness, um, and, and that was of course Rachel Carson. I think I was uh, I well, I was in college when I read uh, Silent Spring, and it had a profound impact on me because I hadn't really um understood or even or even made the connection um and she she was very courageous. She wrote at a time when and um you know there, there just were not many uh, writers who were in doing that kind of investigative work in terms of what 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 kinds of things we were doing in the environment that led directly to, um, to, to creating life-threatening um, illnesses. And uh, she, too, was a poet. The interesting thing is that there's so many parallels um, in their lives. Silent Spring, uh, it took Rachel Carson uh, four years to complete Silent Street. Uh, spring and it meticulously described how DDT particularly entered the food chain and accumulated in the fatty tissues of animals including human beings and caused cancer and of course genetic damage. A single application on a crop, she wrote, killed insects for weeks and months and not only the targeted insects but countless more and remained toxic in the environment even after it was diluted by rainwater. The book's most haunting and famous chapter, A A Fable for Tomorrow, depicted a nameless American town where all life, from fish to birds to apple blossoms to human children, had been silenced by the insidious effects of DDT. And, of course, her groundbreaking work was instrumental um, uh, in leading to the banning of of DDT. Um, And uh, so I, I, I... I found uh, Sandra uh, Steingraber endearing uh, even from the first uh, page, but certainly um, uh, f- uh, from her absolute um, uh, testimony to the work of, of Rachel Carson was particularly endearing. Um, I was just really very taken by um, the opening of her book, The Parable, with which she begins living downstream. And for those of you who have read it, I know you know for those, I'm reading it for the benefit of who who, those who have not. There was once a village along a river. The people who lived there were very kind. These residents, according to parable, began noticing increasing numbers of drowning people caught in the river's swift current. And so they went to work devising ever more elaborate technologies to resuscitate them. So preoccupied were these heroic villagers with rescue and treatment that they never thought to look upstream to see who was pushing the victims in. This book is a walk up that river. And indeed, it is. Um, before I, I begin talking about it, though, I'd like to just share my own personal story as a, as a cancer survivor, and um, um, just because I think it's important to do it, we we just need to know we we have this connection. It's a you know a lifelong, however that may be, a connection. I think. But um, I went in and, in uh, February of 1997 just for a routine. Uh, uh, appointment with my gynecologist and that was always followed by my annual mammogram and it had been quite routine for years I mean almost since I had been here since 1982 but this particular time um, it seemed to take a little bit more time and uh, once the mammogram was done all of a sudden there were a lot more people in the room and I thought gee I wonder what this is and why all of these folks were there and um, I soon found out why, I mean, because there were, there were a couple of radiologists and some other technicians, and indeed they had found something in the mammogram which, which suggested um, that there, there uh, might be carcinoma, uh, and, and, uh, and there was. It was called uh, ductal carcinoma in situ. And uh, while my uh, surgeon, whom I had been interesting because he had been monitoring a very small cyst on my right breast uh, for years since I had been here, actually. And um, this was on my left breast. And um, um, he, when, when of course, I immediately went to him, and he did a biopsy, and in, in fact found again that it was it was ductal carcinoma in situ. And he said, "I never expected that we we would meet this way." And I said, "Well, I didn't either. <laughs> I just assumed that we had not. But given um, uh, given the circumstances, I'm certainly glad I know you, and that we have a relationship. Um, and uh, it was very interesting. He, I, I told him too. I remember I said there are only two ways I'll get through this: laughing my Head off or mad as hell. And he said, Well, for my sake, I just assume that you do it by laughing your head off. So that may be the reason that um, <laughs> when I um, woke up from surgery, which was a modified radical mastectomy, um, I was just barely coming out of the anesthesia and I could barely make out, you know, this white. Coat and 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 then I could hear this voice and you know if you you know for those of you who have been through it it's very foggy and you're still and um so but this voice said I bring you a paradox and I remember saying you know <laughs> I said well I think taking my left breast is quite paradoxical enough. <laughs> um, But as I could focus more, I could see that standing next to Dr. Um, Wallace um, was my internist. Hence, I bring you a paradox. He took me quite seriously when I said that I... um, I say that to say that as devastating as the diagnosis, as um, the treatment, as uh, the whole regimen of cancer is, um, it is difficult to maintain certainly one's sense of humor and one's own Person, one's own space. That's why I have two recommendations always when I am able to maybe, you know, talk with people who are newly diagnosed, and that is you've got to have a safe place, maybe more than one. By that, I don't mean uh, it would be nice if you have a place, a physical place when you, where, where you can go. But what I mean by that is, did you have a person or more than one person? Uh, with whom you are absolutely totally comfortable, with whom you can cry if you need to, laugh which we all need to do, <laughs> and also know that it's inviolate, that there is nothing, there is no behavior, there is, no, there is nothing that can't happen within that safe space. Um, I had two of those. Um, one whose name was Missy Corcoran, when I was diagnosed, to sci- brought me oh about a, a huge stack of books and said, now you are you're going to read this, which, which I did. One was called uh, What to Do if You Get Breast Cancer. And it was so helpful because it helped me learn the questions you know to ask um, and uh, and she was wonderful and she took, she insisted on going with me to every treatment uh, I had 12, um, uh, 12 months of intravenous uh, chemotherapy and uh, Missy with the exception I think of once that she went to all of them the second safe place was my fr- cousin Fran uh, who is my, um, my uh, we are related because our fathers were brothers and um, uh, Fran came to be with me uh, uh, for to you know while I for the surgery and and afterward and um, it, it, there were so many moments that that were um, I, I, just so memorable. One is another funny story, and then I promise I'll stop with the comedy and get on with the drama. But. Um, uh, I, I, prior to being diagnosed with breast cancer, I had done a series of kind of um, infomercials, if, if, if you will, for, for St. Mary's Hospital, now Mercy Partners. And, but all of my doctors, because of some friends I met, and, and one of whom was a surgeon um, uh, at, uh, at Baptist um, so all my doctors were Baptists, and I had done these things because, I, you know, I was a freelancer, and I had just done them, and, and they had paid me to do them. Um, but I, I remember that um, uh, there was a nurse's aide who wheeled me downstairs for some tests, and, and, and on the way back up, I said, can we stop in the pharmacy? And uh, we did, and, and someone who worked at the hospital, obviously, and I'm not, I had no idea who it was, Ken, said in a, in, a, in a much louder than necessary voice, well... Why aren't you at St. Mary's? And I said, well, I said, because of all, all my doctors are here at Baptist. And she said, well, she just wouldn't, she said, well, why aren't you at St. Mary's? I said, well, here's the deal. The Catholics pay me so I can pay the Baptists. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but I was certainly glad that I am the admission. Um... Now to living downstream. Again, and, and, and with that humor, you know, she injects uh, humor and poetry and family history um, into, into a really very traumatic and dramatic story, her own personal journey with cancer. And, you know, the book is, is simultaneously a detective story um, uh, Steingraber investigating her home county, which interestingly enough is, was Taswell oh. County. In 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 the middle of, of Illinois, I'm from Chicago, so I'm very familiar with Pekin, Illinois, which is where she's from, and uh, Peoria and the Peoria area. Flat, flat, not not unsimilar to East Tennessee, except that it doesn't have the rich, beautiful, I think, red earth, and and it's flat, you know, as opposed to hilly or mountainous, um, but. Um, there was a, 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 a larger than, than usual incidence of, of, um, of cancer in, in Tazewell County, Illinois, where she grew up. And she was looking to, especially for clues to the rare bladder cancer that she herself had contracted at the age of 20. Um, and uh, it's also a thoroughly scientific uh, account, and, and one, thankfully, again, that is, is easy to read, of the relationship of cancer-causing chemicals to human and animal health. Um, Dr. Stein-Graber uh, uh, examines the following lines of evidence indicating that certain chemicals and radiation can cause uh, cancer in living things. Cancer in workers exposed to chemicals. Uh, PCBs, dioxin, atrazine, the second most widely used weed killer and so pervasive in in the environment. Uh, She looked at studies of non-worker human populations exposed to chemicals out of ignorance or by accident or by misguided public policy. For example, studies of humans who contract cancers from exposure to chlorinated drinking water. She looked at cancer in immigrants who soon exhibited cancer rates of their adopted countries rather than the cancer rates of the places where they were born, suggesting that environment might be just as important or more important than, her, than heredity or genes. Uh, she looked at maps showing more cancers in urban areas, areas than in rural, maps showing more cancers in rural counties with heavy pesticide use versus rural counties with low pesticide use individual studies revealing cancer clusters near chemical factories and near particularly polluted rivers valleys and dumps the rising rates of childhood cancer the lifestyles of children have not changed much in fifty years they do not smoke they don't drink alcohol or hold stressful jobs yet childhood cancers are steadily rising she looked at cancer in fish and shellfish living in polluted bodies of water in north america there are now liver tumor um, Epizootics, the wildlife life equivalent of epidemics in 16 species of fish in at least 25 different fresh and salt water locations. And this, by the way, the, this information is really from the first edition of this book in 97. So all of the things that i just enumerated, have increased, you know, since that time. Um, she looked at many kinds of cancer that can be induced in laboratory animals by exposing them to certain chemicals. Cellular studies indicating that certain chemo- chemicals can cause cell growth division. Studies showing that chemicals can damage the immune system and the endocrine system promoting cancers. Um, yet despite this amazing body of of evidence, uh, science can never prove beyond all doubt that the chemicalization of the human economy is responsible for a substantial fraction of the cancer epidemic we are experiencing. As Steingraver puts it, it's like assembling, It's like the assembling of a prehistoric animal skeleton. This careful piecing together of evidence can never furnish final or absolute answers. There will always be a few missing parts. She then goes on to explain in detail while science can never provide proof positive when confronted uh, by a problem as complex as environment and health. However, the limitations of science do not render us helpless by any means. In her introduction to the book, Stein Graber notes that as she was writing the last pieces of the book in late 1996 against the again the first edition The news broke that scientists had finally found the agent in cigarette smoke that causes lung cancer. Yet, she points out, she herself grew up protected from cigarette smoke by her parents and teachers and by public policies that kept cigarette smoke out of restaurants, hospitals, and many other public spaces. Actions taken and public policies created by people who had the courage to act on partial evidence. The courage to act on partial evidence is very significant in in um, in, in in Sandra Steingraber's book *Living Downstream*. That we don't necessarily have to have all of the answers; we simply have to have incidences of um, of cancer, incidences of of so many different uh, carcinogenic um, caused illnesses. That we have to act; those are enough to be able to launch um, a campaign to find out why, why they are there and, and, and to try to, to eradicate the agents that may be call, uh, causing them. Very important point that, that she makes, uh, precautionary action. Yet many scientists and policymakers exhibit a hushed complicity tantamount to cowardice, afraid to speak out about what they themselves believe to be true. That cancer is caused by exposure to carcinogens, and that enormous suffering could be avoided if we could reduce our exposures to cancer-causing chemicals in air, water and food. Steingraber says again and again, cancer cells are created, not born. Current science, and again this is back in 1997, tells us that at most 5 to 10 percent of cancer is caused by defective inherited genes. This means that 90 to 95 percent of cancers are created by encounters with carcinogens during a person's lifetime. Yet the modern trend is to focus on the genetic causes of cancer. This deflects attention away from the preventable causes of cancer. As Stein says, shining the spotlight on inheritance focuses us on the one piece of the puzzle we can do absolutely nothing about. We can, however, do something about the other pieces of the puzzles which are found, unfortunately, far too pervasively in our environment. She personalizes this as follows. I had bladder cancer as a young adult. If I tell people this fact, they usually shake their heads. If I go on to mention that cancer runs in my family, they usually start to nod. Oh, she's from one of those cancer families. I can almost hear them thinking. Sometimes I I just leave it at that. But if I am up for blank stares, I add that I am adopted and go on to describe... (laughs) And go on to describe a study of cancer among adoptees that found correlations within their adoptive families, but not within their biological ones. At this point, most people become very quiet, <laughs> but obviously proving the point that environment, environmental factors can be far more significant in the incidence of cancer than heredity. These silences remind me how unfamiliar many of us are with the notion that families share environments as well as chromosomes, or with the concept that, concept that our genes work in communion with, substance, with substances streaming in from the larger ecological world. What runs in families did not, does not necessarily run in blood. And our genes are less an inherited set of teacups enclosed in a cellular china cabinet that they are plates used by a busy diner. Cracks, chips, and scrapes accumulate. Accidents happen. Steingraber says we will have to adopt a new way of thinking about chemicals. This requires a human rights approach, he says. Such an approach recognizes that the current system of regulating the use release and disposal of known and suspected carcinogens rather than preventing their generation in the first place is intolerable. Such a practice shows reckless disregard for human life. And she adds, when carcinogens are deliberately or accidentally introduced into the environment, some number of vulnerable persons are consigned to death. The impossibility of tabulating tabulating an exact body count does not alter this fact. We, being more blunt than um, Sandra Steingraber, draw from this that murder is murder, even if the victim is anonymous. And scientists, risk assessors, and regulators who grease the wheels for such a system, even only by their complicit silence, have blood on their hands. They are the enablers of a system that profoundly violates the human rights of the thousand or millions whom it victimizes. Uh, again, this is my, my thanks to uh, Peter Montague, who actually did a review of the book and, and uh, from whom I drew some some of those comments, and he's with the National Writers' Union, UAW Local uh, 1981, the, from the, of the AFL-CIO. Um, just some quotes from... Um, from Dr. Steingraber, and um, I mean she says that the disconnect between what the scientific cancer community knows and what the people are told is huge and it is. It isn't as though it's it's as though we are um... somewhat imbecilic and we can't possibly understand um, the the very intricate um, uh, things that go in the scientific data or or the or the various uh, diagnostic techniques that that go into the whole area of cancer of detection and treatment Um, and um, you know it may be that that physicians and, and I was very lucky. I, you know I get maybe by nature by virtue of nature of the nature of what I did for a living. I was um, and and I always have just been sort of generally inquisitive. I mean I would ask my doctors a zillion questions. So sometimes they would come in. My my internist especially. Um, I'm sorry. My oncologist uh, particularly would always come in with a sheaf of notes saying, "I know you're going to ask me a zillion questions. So I want to make sure." But We as individuals have to take responsibility for our own for our own welfare and for our own health, we cannot think that we can assign it to others, even though we must obviously, we rely on the physicians who 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 diagnose us, who treat us, who keep us alive. Uh, I remember my again my oncologist who I, all my doctors, as I mentioned before, were Baptists, obviously the Baptists no longer exists. Um, my um, oncologist is uh, is practicing in Morristown, and um, he was quite surprised when I showed up for my annual um, uh, um, uh, you know examination with him in morristown and he said he said i can't believe that you came all the way uh, you know out here i said are you kidding you kept me alive do you think i'm not going to find you <laughs> I, I just you know and and you and you think about it and really cancer patients are as much a part of the medical team if not as much certainly a significant part and almost as much as they are because we have information that we need to share with them and can help them i i i truly do believe in 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 terms of of being able to treat and to help other patients um I, I know this is true this this was this was true a person personally with me and i am you know to this day very grateful for for all of the the medical everyone i mean who who uh, i mean helped me survive um which and, and the chances for that were were you know, not all that great <laughs> at, uh, uh, at 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 certain points. Um, it, it, doctor Doctor uh, uh, Stein Graber also says cancer is a serial killer, and we need to become cancer abolitionists. <laughs> she she is she is a poet. It is amazing, and she the reason that this book I think is so significant is for people who have a lot of trouble. Delving through the tomes of very complicated, very technical medical terms that describe what each of us or many of us have experienced on a very on, on every level emotional physical uh, spiritual uh, it 's devastating to have a diagnosis of cancer and what we don 't need are our kind of highfalutin terms that we don't understand, but there is a way, you know, to, to explain it so that, you know, that, so, so that we can comprehend, um, the diagnosis, what is involved in the treatment, and we, and we, we absolutely, one, we have to have the courage to ask what things are, um, and, and then we have every right to expect that, um, our, 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 our medical caretakers will answer us to the best of, of, of their ability in terms that we can understand. I don't think that's too much to ask and And fortunately i had i mean I had a team of, of physicians who who seemed to get that, and i don 't know whether it was just because they said she 'll nag us to death if we don 't <laughs> but I want all of us to become naggers if that is the case because it is it is vitally important and it 's important to write it down it 's also very important to have another set of ears when i again I go back to that safe place concept um, it 's very important that you have somebody else because um, you know the the physical effects of chemotherapy are <laughs> varied but and sometimes they're they're debilitating and sometimes we are simply exhausted you know we cannot i don't think that ne- necessarily we're even a- a- present enough to be able to comprehend all the things that are being said. Consequently, you've got to have, you know, it's kind of the buddy system, you know, let's kind of stick together and find someone you, again, it's a safe place. It's the person you trust with your life. And you literally are trusting that person with your life. But ask them, you know, to please go on this journey with you. Um, more from from uh, Dr. Steingraber, whenever carcin, carcin, carcinogens are introduced into the environment, some unknown quantity of, of human beings are destined to die. I mentioned that before. the weed killer atrazine is the number one contaminant of water, and, and no body of water, including aquifers or rainwater is, is atrazine, atrazine free. It was amazing when you think back to rachel, rachel carson 's time that she her work not Not solely her work, but certainly she played a significant role in the banning of ddt i you know and i I hope that you know there are those of you here who perhaps you know work in, in on environmental issues or can talk about specifically some of the we obviously live in an area that is not immune <laughs> and 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 in fact is is perhaps more more vulnerable than than many i I think about you know, the millions of tons of of fly ash that, you know, permeated parts of of, of East Tennessee not that long ago. And there are many other environmental factors that directly impact us. We need to know what they are, and uh, we do need to have some, uh, we need to be informed citizens um, about that. Um, She also writes, I believe in the future our grandchildren will look back on us and marvel That our economy was once dependent on chemicals that are killing the planet and ourselves, and they will think of it as unthinkable. Um, I hope they will think of it as unthinkable because by the time they are our age, or they, you know, that somehow we will have um, recognized that we can no longer contaminate the environment and live. Um, and, and of course, you know the tremendous backlash from the myriad of com- companies, uh, and we have a lot of them, you know, here in East Tennessee, that that create the very the, 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 the chemicals, the products that while they may be beneficial in many ways, also contain uh, the contaminants and the carcinogens that may in fact threaten our lives um, it is a, It is a, a kind of balancing act that that is difficult, but I think it is one that requires us as citizens and ju- and as human beings to to um, acknowledge and and also to act on um, i really I really do um, i I think finally, I think the quote that i really well I love them all i mean i I absolutely adore this book, and I encourage all of you who have not read it to to do so um, She says we need an environmental human rights movement; it is a vision under which I labor and which may, if we work in concert, become a reality. And if it does, I think we can save you know, an awful lot of, of lives. Um, she is also a proponent, a proponent of, um, of green power. <laughs> she really um, believes in, in green energy. There are, there are movements in our own community toward that, toward recycling especially. We are, such a thro- we are still a throwaway society. You know, we're finished with it, so let's throw it in the trash. It may have formaldehyde in it. It may be plastic, whatever it is. We don't need it anymore, so let's throw it away. Let's put it into the environment without knowing what its actual life span is and what kinds of poison, poisons it's actually releasing into the envir- environment and, 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 and into the air we breathe. And she, you know, she has a she has a second book, um, uh, Dr. Stein Graber, and it and um, it is actually talking about. Um, uh, it's called uh, Raising Elijah, and and it's talking about the environmental threats that our children face, and grandchildren. Um, it's an environment even more threatening to their health than any generation in history. Um, she confronts the crisis and with precise science and a lyrical, witty, moving memoir, uh, which, uh, and, and I think that she, you know, the, the thing that makes her, I think, um, a remarkable writer and I'm sure a remarkable scientist and, and is that she, she has the ability to translate very complicated things into language that we can all understand. And she has the compassion to know how difficult it is for us to understand those things, but how important it is. So she's willing to go the distance to make sure that that we we give it every we give it our full attention, you know, and that we begin to look at things that we can do. Uh, in this whole human rights movement that we need, we need to, to to continue or to begin, so that we can prevent some of these things from happening happening I, I just think recycling is one of the um one of the most important things that, that we can do. We've got to stop throwing all this stuff into the into the waste stream. I mean, we can't keep polluting our rivers and our forests and our uh, communities, you know, when things can be recycled. It may not be useful to you anymore, but it might be useful to somebody else, especially the number of green industries that that, that are emerging that can convert some of these things to something else that is not uh, you know, poisonous <laughs> to people or plants or or, or all living things. Um, uh, you know, I'm I, I, sorry that I can't go, I, I don't want, I do want to I think we've got about what 15 minutes left, and I really would like to to spend some time, you know, maybe having a discussion about this. If anyone, you know, wants to to mention something else about the book, or has any questions, or has any comments, and if if it's a personal story with your own encounters, if it's, I know that there are a lot of green initiatives in East Tennessee, and if anybody is involved in any any of them, I'm 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 looking at Chris Bice, who's who's the minister of. Um, uh, Tennessee Valley Unitarian Church, which is my church, although I'm an absentee member much of the time. It is still my church. He is still my, my minister. <laughs> and uh, I know that it is a church that is a green church. I mean, it is it is committed to recycling and to reducing uh, the waste stream in our, our environment. And it takes, you know, it's not easy because we're, we're, we're just in the habit. We have so much in this country that we just... Think it's renewable. We can just get more. Well, we can't. <laughs> we can't, and we certainly can't do it when it comes to the it comes to the environment. So I just you know encourage all of you to um, to think about just individually what we can do to re- to reduce the contaminants and the, and the carcinogens in our in our environment by simply uh, our own habits. And we and change is not easy, you know. We certainly know that. But the consequences of not changing are just too too frightening. So I think we all have to do it. And, and I I really appreciate your letting me come and <laughs> and and talk about this truly amazing book. For those of you who haven't read it, please do. It's really quite remarkable. Are there any questions or
1: comments? Or thank you. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, as you and I had spoken about before, when my husband came down with cancer on his liver, um, I started doing the research. And a friend of mine encouraged me to really look at the personal care products he was using because there was no cancer in his family. And he had not come in contact with anything mm-hmm. in flying airplanes for the Navy. Um, And I discovered that the shampoo he had been using for almost 40 years had two known carcinogens that were banned in Europe. And in my personal research, I discovered there's a list of about 1,200 additives to personal care products that are banned in Europe. Mm. And when they banned these products, um, ingredients, the cancer rate dropped tremendously Mm. in England and the U.K., Um, I was absolutely stunned, and you can ask me later what I, what I have done now, but the biggest thing is, is I found a shampoo Great. and a men's vitamin that has stopped the growth of his inoperable cancer because I firmly believe we have stopped poisoning his body. Yeah. And I challenge everyone to go home. If you don't know what it is, Google it. If we're talking about environment, we need to look at what's right. inside of our home also. Thank you. Anybody else? Comment? Question.
2: What specifically
0: are the the largest and most dangerous environmental carcinogens out there now? Atrazine is one. Uh, the, you know, the weed killer. You know, we it's it's interesting. We, you know, we uh, and it's to think that we we want to um, eliminate a pest, but the cost is that we also eliminate human life. I mean, that we also run the risk of atrazine, PCBs, dioxin, things that we, you know, we hear about them, but we need to take the time to look into them and to figure out what they are. I mean, I, if you have, have, you read, have you read this book? I would read it. She, she does, a, a, I think, a magnificent job of defining for a lay person what these chemicals are and what they do. Um, much as Rachel Carson uh, you know, attempted to, I mean she actually did the same thing in a way that you know she told us a story and it was a story um, of people being pushed in the river and, and and an investigation of who's pushing them in you know so, so I think we have to become um, knowledgeable about the things that have the potential to kill us and our, and future generations. And the only way to do that, I mean, I think there are, you know, almost every organization, whether it's churches, I, I've mentioned Tennessee Valley Unitarian Church, I'm sure if we went, if we took a survey of how many people belong to churches, social organizations, um, uh, political organizations, whatever, whatever, wherever groups of people assemble, this topic has got to be very high on the agenda. I mean, our very existence hangs in the balance, and not so much in ours. I mean, I'm, I'm well, I'm not going to tell you how, well, I'm 67, I'll go ahead, what the hell, and go ahead, tell as many people as you know, it's just fine, because, I mean, I'm glad. I mean, I, there was a time when I wasn't sure I was going to make it to, uh, you know, whatever age I, you know, I was when I was diagnosed, uh, that I was going to make it to my next birthday, so I'm delighted to be 67, and I hope to be 68 and 69 and 70 and all of it. But you know, the, the blueprint is sort of there. I mean, you, once you've had a life-threatening illness, um, it is interesting. You just um, you you just know that 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 the possibility of your own demise is 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 very real. <laughs> And um, it's not that you live every day in fear, but you do live every day in awareness. And what we also need to live every day in is is kind of um, questioning what factors go into causing various types of cancer. And we know that environmental factors are huge. And again, we, we, we you know we live in an area where we, you know, we do have some we have some hazards. Yes, sorry.
2: Hi. Hi. Um, we have something today in our environment that's called multiple chemical sensitivity, mm-hmm. and it is based many on many of the issues that you're dealing with. in as we've talked about here today, the things that are causing multiple chemical sensitivity, or our homes. Uh, things like deodorizers and some of the issues that are addressed in Rachel Carson's book, which I read back in Wisconsin when I was a graduate student in housing and didn't have an idea that I would be reading that today and understanding it. We have an epidemic in this country right now in housing Mm -hmm. and toxic housing We do not have safe housing in America. No. Uh, That's something that we need to focus on as we think about the environmental toxins and some of the things that we're breathing, we're eating, Mm -hmm. and it's all
0: around us and people are not attuned to it. No, we're not aware. Thank you very much. We get busy, we get selfish, we get we we want to accumulate stuff and we forget we are connected and the very planet th- its survival depends on our recognizing that connection and making sure that whatever threats to it are recognized and are eliminated and i think we you know we all have to take individual responsibility i d- <laughs> Years ago, I have I have uh, red wasp that seem to want to come in every spring. They're always outside. They're always inside, and I'm of course I want to get rid of them. So for a long time, I use bug spray, and then I thought this is crazy. <laughs> I'm not just killing the bugs. I'm killing. I happen to have frogs and, and, and a dog, and I'm killing every, and you know, not, not to mention all the stuff I'm putting in the atmosphere. So I started using um, essential oil, peppermint oil, and mixing it with water. And you know, it's a pretty darn effective uh, insecticide. Now, I, obviously, I don't know whether it could be mass produced, but why not? We, we certainly have the resources, and we have the ingenuity, but what we don't have is the impetus from the public, from citizens, like everybody in this room, to say, look, We're not going to stand for being poisoned in our own country. We're just not going to do it. And we're going to individually and collectively make sure that our legislators, both locally and, uh, you know, statewide, nationally, understand what's at stake here. I mean, they may talk the talk, but you better walk the walk on this one, or there are going to be some amazingly disastrous results so, it is, it is critical, and I think, you know, again, it come, I, I go back to individual responsibility. Look at your own environment, your own house. Um, as she was saying, looking at, at, at various products, just look, reading the labels, and trying to understand, is it complicated? Yes, these are, you know, I think they have these amazingly difficultly long names for a reason. So, we're not gonna know what they are. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that it's it's a deliberate plot, but when you think about it, you know it's it it is to some extent uh, prohibitive for our really understanding. We think, oh, that's too complicated. We just know that it does the job. It kills the insects. It um, you know it cleans whatever it needs to clean. It, you know, uh, but what we have to constantly ask: What are the consequences? Yes environmental working group has a database skin deep and it um lists oh, skin deep i'm sorry skin deep okay. CosmeticsDatabase.com. cosmetics database.com Oh, com. database.com okay yes and they list a um, bunch of different cosmetics mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. other personal items anybody else thank you very much this was thank you for participating Thank you for listening to Brown Bag Green Book, a lunchtime series of book discussions about environmental sustainability. To hear other podcasts, please visit
1: www.knoxlib.org.